This is the Conduit Church Podcast. It is our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us. Thanks for joining us for this week's teaching. Good morning. Happy New Year's Eve. So just to frame this morning for you, you know when a team is up 30 and there's still a few minutes left and they put in the third string quarterback? Um, that's what's happening here, okay? Um, we had a great year. We paid off our mortgage. We had a record-breaking Christmas Eve weekend. The starters are tired, so they bring in the third string. And that's what you're getting today. Um, there are zero expectations from the staff. They don't even know what I'm preaching on right now. And that's not a joke. I asked Darren if he had a message in mind and he said, whatever you want. So that would be like the coach telling the third string quarterback, just whatever play calls you want, just kneel the ball. We're just running out the clock. We got one more Sunday. That's what's happening today. So lower your expectations, please. Um, It is officially bonus Sunday here, all right? So we already had a good year. Doesn't matter what happens here. Um, So... Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about myself, uh, because I am a rare breed in that I grew up in Franklin, Tennessee. Now, some of you didn't know that there were inhabitants in this area in the 90s, but there were. I was one of them. Uh, My parents still live in the same house down the street in Green Valley. Um, I grew up, 37064, for the first 23 years of my life. Um, I married a beautiful girl, Katie. This is the very first picture we ever took together. We were in the same fourth grade class. Took 13 years to convince her to date me. And so don't give up, gentlemen. There's still time. Um, we got married. Uh, we have two beautiful kids, Hazel and Holly. Um, they absolutely love coming here as our family does every single week. Um, they love, love, love our kids' ministry. Uh, they love Hannah. They love Peyton. They love Amber. They love Chris. Do you guys love the kids' ministry here? I absolutely do. I'm thankful that my kids love coming to church because something I said when I was a church planter myself, it is, it is way better for kids to have to drag their parents to church than the other way around. And my, parent, and my, my uh, children absolutely love coming here. Um, I went to uh, Fred J. Page High School um, just down the street, um, get some woots there. I went there before the West Coast Wealth took it over. Um, like when I tell people now uh, that I went to Page around Franklin, people are like, ooh, it was not like that when I was there. I can assure you of that. Um, I went uh, at a time when there was a kid in my class whose car ran out of gas, so he drove his lawnmower to school, and people were fine with it. That's Paige. Like, our big senior prank was one of the farmers brought a pig and let it loose in the school, and another farmer recognized the pig. They're like, is that Ernie? Is that Ernie the pig? Like, that's Paige High School, the way that I think of it. It's obviously very different now. Um, I was a high school athlete. Any high school athletes in here that played sports in high school? Not very many of us. Okay, well, uh, I was on the bowling team. So um, a lot of you didn't know that existed. Well, it did, and we were 2005 state champions, okay? So that is the thing. I know that because I was the first alternate. I was not a starter, but if any of the starters uh, got hungry or needed to use the restroom, I was, there's not a lot of injuries in bowling, so I just kind of sat in the back, ate nachos, watched us win state. So I know what it's like if you're a high school athlete. Um, It was in the halls of Page High School that I really captured my faith in the Lord, and I just 
became so passionate as a 16-year-old in wanting to share my faith with my friends. Um, I restarted a first priority uh, club there, which many of you are familiar with, and I saw one by one so many of my friends come to the Lord. I remember on Wednesday mornings chasing down the janitor at 6.30 a.m. so that he could unlock the gym so that we could have a little Bible study in this little club that grew from three of us to over 50 students and just seeing God work in an amazing way. And I knew then that I wanted to commit my life to sharing Jesus with the people around me. I became a youth pastor after college for 10 years. And then uh, several years ago, my family felt called to move to a small town about 30 minutes south of Boston, Massachusetts, um, and plant a church. There was not a Bible-centered church in this little town. Um, and uh, we saw God do amazing things. The church is still going strong to this day. Um, but I was there when the Titans beat the Patriots in the playoffs three years ago. Uh, and, uh, and I remember Tom Brady's very last pass as a Patriot. I was 20 minutes from Foxborough when this happened. His very last pass was to a Titan. It was a pick six. We scored a touchdown. Um, he threw more touchdown passes, I think, than Ryan Tannehill did for the Titans that game. And, uh, and after that game, Tom Brady said, you know what, it's t- my time in New England's done. I'm going to move south. And I moved with him. And we decided to come south. And I'm here in Franklin. I'm so glad to be back in my hometown. Um, I really am. Now, it is, it is New Year's Eve. And um, I don't think there's anybody in this room that goes into the new year um, with low expectations. I think we all have hopes and dreams and goals of what we want 2024 to be. Um, it's rare that you'll talk to somebody who says, I'm really thinking next year is gonna be a bad year and it's, I'm gonna be poorer and things are gonna get worse in my life. That's not what we do. We stand here and we're excited. Has anybody already written down any goals that they wanna set for next year? Some of us have. Very few of us have. Uh, some of us will tonight. Some of us will this week. Some of us maybe know what those are and we don't have to write them down. Um, my goal this year was to lose weight. Um, and the next thing I know, it's New Year's Eve. So that didn't happen, but maybe next year, right? Um, so we all set these goals. I want to talk about one particular area of our life that um, I've personally never set a goal in. Um, I imagine you haven't either because it's not an area of our life we think of setting goals, but at the same time, It's an area of our life that we think about every single day. It's an area of our life that is closely tied to our spiritual well-being, our overall emotional well-being. It's the area of our life that generally correlates most actually with our overall happiness in life. And that is our friendships, your friendships. Um, I just wanna take some time to talk about that because I think that um, God cares an awful lot about the friends in your life and the kind of friend that you are. And before we jump in, um, I just want you to do a self-evaluation. You don't have to answer this out loud, so be as honest um, as you can be. On a scale from one to 10, this is just for you to think through, um, how good of a friend are you to your closest friends? Just answer that. One being you're a terrible friend, you make your life and their life worse by being in their presence, right? Hopefully nobody's one. Uh, 10 is you're an incredible friend. Like your friends brag about you when you're not there. You initiate, you remember their birthdays, their anniversaries, you're there for them, you're encouraging them, you're supporting them. Just think through one to 10, where would you put yourself? And just be kind of honest. I wanna kind of frame this conversation so that you know what your starting point is. Um, And then one more question. Um, As we go into 2024, I want you to think of uh, what, which friend, or maybe two friends, do you want to grow closer with this upcoming year? Could be a friend that you've already had for years that you just want to go deeper with. Could be a friend that's relatively new, um, but you, you really you want to spend more time with that person. Um, just think through one or two names uh, right now. 
because um, we're going we're gonna to talk about this for just a little bit. This is not a subject that we talk about uh, in church very often, and, and it's one that it just continues to come back to me because I think that so many of the things we deal with um, on a personal level and in our heads um, go back to this, is the void of friendships that so many people feel uh, now more than ever. So what we're going to do today is just spend some time thinking about how this next year can allow us to experience the greatest level of friendships we've ever had, the kind of friendships that Jesus wants us to have and the kind of friendships that Jesus even modeled for us. There's a book I read a few years ago called Together by Dr. Vivek Murthy, and he talks about the three kinds of human connection that every single person needs. And if you're lacking at least one of these, then there is a, uh, a sense that you are not fulfilled. There's often a sense of loneliness because we, we don't just need um, a one kind, we need all three. The first kind of connection that we need is an intimate connection, is somebody that we, we truly share our entire lives with. And that's most often for, for many of us, uh, our spouse. That's my wife, Katie. Um, if you're single, that might be a really close friend that is, is, is closer than a typical friend for you. But you need that intimate connection with somebody. Uh, the next connection that we need is a relational connection. Um, those are friends. Those are friends that um, you're socially connected with, that you, that you spend time with, that you celebrate with, that are there for you when things get challenging, um, and friends that you just get to, um, uh, get to walk alongside. Uh, the third kind of connection that, I, that most of us, um, I think actually this in a lot of ways is the easiest connection that we can find, um, is a collective connection. That means that every single person designed by God needs to be connected to something bigger than themselves. Now, for us as Christians, that's the church. For most of us, the reason that we started coming to Conduit, whether it was this year or several years ago, is because we wanted to be connected to this mission. We wanted to lock arms with a church family that was passionate about reaching people all over the world that were far from God, um, that were underprivileged. And, and that collective connection, it gives us purpose in life. People that don't know Jesus, they find this in other forms. They turn other things into idols into their own religions because we have that void and, and need that. Those are the three kinds of connections that uh, this book shares we all need in our lives. The one I want to zoom in on and spend time on is the relational connections. And the reason for that is I think that's where the biggest void is in our society today. Um, in fact, the book shares that today, four times as many people say, as many adults say that they have no friends as did in 1990. So loneliness has quadrupled in the past 20 years. Um, and, and the book shares that when women generally, generally speaking, when women are, are lonely, their tendency is to retreat and blame themselves for it that there's guilt and shame, and many of you can resonate with that, that if you're, if you're feeling a sense of loneliness or feel like you don't have the kind of friendships or social connections around you, um, your immediate thought and the way that Satan actually tries to lie to you is to tell you that it's your fault. Men are different. When men feel lonely, um, they tend to avoid it and to work more. So it actually pushes them into more activity, into a, a sense of avoidance. That's what the book tells us. And so in both cases, when loneliness is presence, uh, it, 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 our tendency is not to dig in, but to withdraw. And so what begins is a snowball effect, um, is we live in a society that never, every statistic says that our society has never been lonelier than it is now. It's not even close. Like we are, we are living among the loneliest era and the loneliest generations in the history of the country. 
And we know that there's plenty of reasons for that. And we know that it's probably not going to get better unless we do something about it. Because we, we live 50% of our lives on technology, and all technology does is breed more loneliness. And so if our tendency is to withdraw, what I want to do is explore this more and look at what we can do to make 2024 the best friendship year of our lives. And so we're going to look at a passage in John chapter 11. Um, and this is actually an interesting passage to look at for this because many of us are very familiar with this passage, but we've probably never looked at this passage through the lens of Jesus's relationship with the people um, in the room. So John chapter 11 is Jesus's final miracle before, uh, before uh, he's crucified and risen. Uh, and this is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, most of us are familiar with this. We taught on this just a few months ago. What I want to do is not focus on the miracle. I want to focus on what happens before the miracle because I think there's a lot that, that Jesus is actually trying to tell us and the author John is trying to tell us in the way that he writes it. Um, some context here because I think this is a fascinating passage. This is a fascinating passage, and here's why. This is Jesus' last miracle um, before he's arrested. Um, his first miracle was where? Does anybody remember where the, his first miracle took place in John chapter 2? Just yell it out. It was at a, it was at a wedding. His final miracle takes place at a funeral. Very strategic. Jesus' entire ministry, none of it's by accident. The other thing about this story is it parallels with um, actually the plagues in Exodus. Uh, the plagues in Exodus are actually foretelling Jesus' ministry centuries in advance. The very first plague in Exodus, if you remember, is when God turns water into, anybody remember? Blood. Jesus' first miracle is when God turns water into wine. The final plague is the death of the firstborns. The final miracle of Jesus is Jesus raising a dead man to life. All of this is paralleled. It's amazing how God's word works together like that. So John chapter 11, verse one, here's what it says. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, John is giving us a clue here because there are a lot of Marys in the Bible. If you're reading John from cover to cover, you get confused because Jesus had a mom named Mary, then there's another Mary, and he's trying to say, here's the different Mary. This is the Mary that Jesus was actually pretty close with, was this family. It would be like when I went to Page, somebody said, Bubba got in a tracker accident, and you naturally say, well, which Bubba? It's like, well, it's Bubba Cletus Jr., ah, I see. So he's, it's letting us know which family we're talking about here. This is Mary and Martha, the ones that, uh, that were with Jesus in that moment where Martha wiped his feet with perfume. It says, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, and listen to the language here. Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment because... Um, in the English language, there is only one word for love. And what is it? Love. Yes, love. Uh, that's it. There's just one. Uh, in the Koine Greek language, which was the New Testament, Koine Greek is an ancient Greek. It's actually not spoken anymore. Um, there's a form of it that is spoken today um, in modern-day Greece. But Koine Greek, in which the New Testament was written, had three different words for love, which means that sometimes we miss the meaning behind what is saying here because we assume it all means the same thing. But we use the word love in very different ways, right? Um, so the most common form of love in the New Testament 
is agape love, which is the sacrificial love. That's the love that compels God to send his son and die on the cross for us. That's the most common that's used um, in the New Testament. Um, The second is an eros love, which is like a romantic love. That's like my love for my wife. That's, That's Valentine's Day love. Now, in neither case is this the love that John uses to describe Jesus's relationship with Lazarus. He's actually using a third form of love, which is not used very often in the New Testament. It's actually the only time this word is used to describe Jesus's relationship with a friend, um, and it's, it's philia, uh, which is like a brotherly or a sisterly love. It's a love that you feel for a deep friend, and this is the love that is used to describe Jesus's relationship with Lazarus. It's not used very often. Most of the time, um, when it's talking about how Jesus loved the people around them, it's talking about agape. So this is a distinction here that is taking place to show the close relationship that they have together. Um, if you're familiar with Philadelphia, have you ever heard of Philadelphia being the city of brotherly love? Um, that's where this comes from. I've been to Philadelphia. Didn't feel that way at all to me, but that's okay. <laughs> that's where it comes from. It's brotherly love. So I want you to pay attention to that because it's important. John is trying to show us something. He could have used the same love, the same word for love that he uses, but he's showing that Jesus had a different kind of relationship with Lazarus. Verse four, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, what's actually happening here is Jesus is actually prophesying what's gonna happen, but the people around him don't realize it because he says, Lazarus won't die. And what he actually means is Lazarus won't stay dead because he eventually does die and then Jesus raises him, but they don't realize that. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, again, John is writing love here, but he uses a different word. He uses agape love here. So as he's writing this, what what it's translated to is he loved Lazarus, he loved Mary and Martha, and he loved Lazarus. He's actually saying he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus with agape sacrificial love, but he also loved Lazarus with this brotherly love. You see, so it's very easy to lose the language here, but what John is trying to show us is Jesus had a very special connection and relationship with Lazarus. Verse six, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was, for two more days. Why did Jesus stay, even though he was really busy? Because he loved Lazarus, and when you love somebody like a brother, like a sister, like a deep, close friend, you inconvenience your life for them. Hopefully, you have friends in your life that would inconvenience their life for you if you were going through a really challenging time. Um, I started a small group a few months ago um, in my own home in Tollgate Village, and, and almost every single person in the small group I had never met until they showed up um, at our house. And fast forward six months, um, we've become really good friends in a short amount of time. In fact, they're coming over tonight. We're doing a New Year's Eve uh, kid-friendly potluck with a countdown at 8 p.m. because all of our kids are way too young for a midnight countdown. Um, I love that. That's a group of friends I did not have even seven months ago. And that's why we encourage small groups because these are the kinds of connections you can have. There's a family that we have met and become good friends with in the past six months through this small group, uh, the Yoders, Dennis and Rose. And um, Dennis has become a, the kind of friend that... Um, that, that, that shares uh, just that deep brotherly love for me, even though I've only known him for a few months. Um, about three weeks ago, um, my wife and I uh, were awoken in the middle of the night and there was like, you could hear a leak. 
You guys love that feeling, don't you? When you just hear a leak in your roof and you're not sure what's happening. And, um, and so we didn't sleep very well. The next day, I reached out to Dennis. And I knew Dennis had been gone all weekend um, back visiting family. Um, and, uh, and so I knew he wasn't even going to be back home until Sunday night. And then he had to turn around and work Monday. But I asked if there was any possible way that when he got home, he could come over to our house and just take a look at it. Because um, he, he has a background as a contractor and he has those kind of skills. I do not. I studied film. So I bring no skills to the table for my family. Uh, but he did. And so I said, hey, is there any way you could come over and just take a look at this leak? So so Dennis comes in, he comes into our attic, which I've never been in in my life, and, uh, and he crawls, and before I know it, he's a mile away from me in the attic. I didn't even know my attic was that large, and I said, Dennis, are you there? And he goes, yeah, I'm down here. I didn't even know where he was. But apparently he had gone down like, tw- like my attic drops like 20 feet and he's crawling like on dust and like what's the, the, the foam insulation stuff. He's getting it all over himself at like 8.30 at night after spending the entire weekend away, finds where the leak is, takes some pictures, comes out and he's just covered in like dust and I'm not because I'm too lazy and I have no idea what to even look for. And he just shows me pictures and he says, hey, here's the problem. It's actually not big of a deal as you think it is. I think you'll be fine. You don't have to get it uh, immediately fixed, but you should eventually. Um, And it just gave peace of mind. We were able to sleep well that night. To me, when I think of the kind of love that Jesus has that he's inconveniencing his life for Lazarus, I think of that. I think of the kind of friend that's willing to come over. He had every reason to say, it's been a long weekend, but he wanted to help a friend out. That's the kind of friendship that we're seeing here Uh, with Jesus that's being modeled when he goes back to spend time with Lazarus. Um, We need more of that, don't we? Like, I think every single person in this room wants more friends like that. And we want to be that kind of friend. We want to be the kind of friend that will inconvenience our lives um, for the people around us. Uh, There was a a study um, done by the Cigna group just on loneliness. And I don't know if any of this will be news to you because we talk about this and we know that this is true and a lot of us are experiencing this every day. Um, The Cigna group found this, that 79% of young adults, 18 to 24, 79 um, record being lonely on a regular basis. 79, almost four out of five. Um, You zoom out a little bit, um, 18 to 34, 42% report always feeling left out, just feeling on the outside looking in. Uh, You zoom out a little bit further, um, of all adult men and women, 57% of men, so the majority of men, 59% of women, majority of women report feeling lonely on a regular basis. Um, Apparently when you become a parent, um, you become lonelier um, because the stat increases as you become a parent. The next slide says 65% of parents and guardians are classified as lonely. Uh, As you can see, uh, a gap 10% higher than non-parents. Many of you know this very, very much. You know the reality that when you become a kid, the amount of energy that you goes away from your social life and towards raising children, it it becomes incredibly challenging to keep those connections going. Um, And and even more specifically in that, 69% of moms report feeling lonely, which means if that's you, which is the majority of the moms in the room, your assumption is probably that you feel this way and the most of the people around you don't because we don't talk about it, but actually the stats would say the opposite, that almost seven out of 10 women feel lonely on a regular basis. Men, it's not much better, 62% of dads. I would actually guess it's probably about the same. I just think more men are in denial and, and won't admit it, to be honest, because it's an awkward subject to talk about. Um, single parents, even more so, 77% of single parents um, struggle with loneliness on a regular basis. Um, the thing is, these aren't just stats, right? These are people. In fact, uh, these stats would show that the overwhelming majority of this room feels lonely, feels a void of the brotherly love that Jesus felt for Lazarus, that philia love that we see. Um, It's awkward to talk about. 
isn't it? Like it's awkward to tell a friend I feel lonely because what does your friend say? Well, I'll be your friend. Like it's weird. That's why we don't talk about it very often. That's why it's kind of this silent epidemic that just takes place in our hearts, but it's hard to express it out loud. There's also assumptions. Satan loves to fill your head with lies with, and, and makes, makes you think you're the only one feeling this way and everybody else is having parties without you and everybody's friends. And every stat shows it's the opposite. Every stat shows that the majority of every adult group of Americans uh, feels lonely. It uh, doesn't mean that you are, and I'm not trying to impress that stat on you as much as just recognize that this is a reality that we all face. Now, I'll say this. I've been a pastor for, uh, for 15 years, um, and I w- I've worked at four great churches and one mediocre church that tried really hard. Um, and I can confidently say, and you weren't the mediocre ones. That's good news. Um, and I can confidently say that, that each of those churches did a really good job of agape love. Like every church I've ever been a part of, the, the, the sharing the community, the loving, the people around them, the underprivileged, like that was never a challenge. But I, I'd say that, um, that where we struggle as a church is with this kind of love. I just don't think we're doing a great job of being really good friends, the kind of friends that Jesus models for us. I just don't think we do a great job with it. And that's not a personal attack on you as much as just an assessment that every stat shows that. And if I can be brutally honest, and I will because it's bonus Sunday and... I have nothing at stake, and half of you will forget what I said by Tuesday. I think that we, as Christians, this is our biggest area of improvement. Because Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciple by how you love one another. And I think that if we're, if we're using the evidence of the kind of friends that we are being to the people around us, not, I don't think people in this room are jerks. I just think we're kind of lazy. I think we're socially lazy. And I think that we have every excuse in the world for why um, we're not a 10 out of 10 friend. Um, it's not everybody. I do think there's, there's some exceptions, but I think I know I'm smack dab in the middle of the millennial generation and millennial guys, we're terrible at this. We're just not great at it. And it's weird to talk about. Uh, we'd, rather, we'd rather focus on work, um, but every stat shows that, that we struggle with it. Um, I mean, the truth is this, the church is designed to be the most meaningful community in the entire world. There shouldn't even be a close second. And yet we struggle with this just as much as the world does. Like Christians should be the best friends in the world because of the love that Jesus has given us and what he's modeled for us. And yet this is an area that I feel like as a church, we're not much better than everybody else because the stats show it. We're just as lonely as the rest of them. The world is a clicky world. So are we. The world is socially lazy. So are we. The world spends so much time on technology, more than we should. We do too. That's why we're facing the same problems they're facing. And it's really hard to admit it when we're feeling lonely. It's kind of awkward. For a, for a guy, it's like talking about your salary. It feels too private. And like, I shouldn't be bringing this up. This is a little bit personal. And so what ends up happening is it just becomes this internal civil war and we don't talk about it. And that's when Satan's lies love to just come in and attack us. Because if we don't speak it out loud, nobody can help us. That's why... Uh, the average adult male, this is another stats, the average adult male in America has not made a new friend in the past five years of their lives. Uh, most of the friends that adult males have are friends from years ago, college or high school. And, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But as far as actively, you know, healthy things grow. So the fact of actively building new friendships, going deeper, a lot of us just get to a place of cruise control. So, you know, go back to that one to 10. On a scale from one to 10, you know, how good of a friend 
Do you feel like you're being to your closest friends? Are you the kind of friend that makes the people around you feel less lonely? Because I think that's ultimately the goal here. And I'll say this, there's, there's actually good news in all this. I'm not just here to say, we're terrible, let's pray. Um, I actually think that there's a lot that we can do here. Uh, and I think that there's a great solution that Jesus models to us that, that is very attainable for every person in this room. And, and before we go there, I just wanna get back and, and look at what Jesus does next in the story with Lazarus. So the story, I'm just gonna fast forward it a little bit. <clears throat> um, Lazarus dies, um, everybody mourns. Um, the, the, his sisters are upset be, uh, because Jesus said he wasn't gonna die. And we know that that's because he's got other plans. He's gonna raise him from the dead. And all of that is um, to foreshadow um, him raising himself from the dead um, just days later, right? So all of this is is a part of the Jesus story. Um, So he goes back to see Mary and Martha. Verse 32, "When, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Jesus doesn't get defensive because he knows she's in pain and she doesn't understand his whole story. And so instead, here's how he responds. When he saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along, and they're just the spectators in the back, saw her also weeping, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then Jesus wept. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that Jesus Jesus cries. Pretty unique response. It's probably a response that surprised everybody in the room. That the person who they see as as their rabbi, as their teacher, as their leader, as their Messiah is crying with them. Because for a lot of people, crying is a sign of weakness and it's absolutely not. But there's only three times in in the entire gospel narrative that Jesus cries. And this is the first. The second um, is days later on Palm Sunday when he's entering Jerusalem and he looks over the city and he weeps because he thinks of all that's about to happen. The third is in the garden right before he's arrested where he's crying out to God, God, if there's any other way. So those two make a lot of sense. This one feels unique, doesn't it? It feels a little bit unique that this is his response here. Why is he crying? Because surely Jesus has seen plenty of sick people die. Surely there's been plenty of times in his ministry. I mean, he's dealing with the broken, sick people of society, but this particular time brings him to tears. And it's the only time in all of John's account, all the gospels that he cries over the death of somebody. It's the only time. It's because he's joining in with their sadness and he's showing a level of empathy and he shares in this very hard moment with them, even though he knows he's about to raise him from the dead, even though he knows all power has been given to him and he could raise Lazarus from the dead. But in that moment, he pauses to share in the pain with Mary and Martha because of their loss of Lazarus, because he loves this family so much. Sometimes we just need to pause and share in the pain with a friend because that's what they need more than anything else. Like, don't you wanna have those kind of friends that just, just slow down and mourn? Don't try to say the right thing, but just be there with you. Like, that's the kind of friend we wanna be. Your great friend in my mind uh, shares in the happy moments, in the hard moments, and, and in the boring moments. And that's how you know you have a great friend is when they celebrate the big moments with you, um, like when something big happens in your life, they're there to celebrate it with you, unprompted. You don't ask them to, they just know about it. Uh, the, the, the hard moments, just like Jesus is doing here with Lazarus, um, that they're gonna support you. They're gonna allocate time. They're gonna inconvenience their schedule to be there for you. That's the kind of friend that Jesus wants us to be. Um, but even the friends that, that like make the boring moments a little bit better, right? Um, I have two very close friends of mine that I met years ago, uh, Landon and Aaron, and we started a tradition earlier this year. And it was all based on the fact that 
Um, I, uh, something I love to do on the side is write. Um, I've written a few books, and there's a screenplay that I've been wanting to write for several years, and I really wanted to submit it into a film festival this past year. And just as any of you that have ever tried to do something on the side like that, that it's not your primary income, it's like the lowest priority. Like, it's so hard to find time to do it, right? And I knew that the only way I'd get this thing done um, was if I carved out like two or three days, and I just went on a writing retreat, and I blocked out all of the responsibilities, and I just wrote this. And so I talked to my wife about doing that. Um, and I said, you know, it, instead of me just going on my own and like camping out in a hotel and writing on a laptop, I'd rather make it fun. And so I asked my two friends, uh, Landon and Aaron, I said, hey, I know you guys are creatives and you guys are always working on projects. What do you think of us just going to a city and working from there for a few days and turning a boring work week into something a little bit more fun? They said, that sounds pretty cool. I said, and I made a deal with my wife. I said, so that you're not jealous that I'm taking this trip without you, I'm gonna choose a really boring city that you don't wanna go to. And so I gave her a list of cities and she's like, I don't wanna go to any of those cities. I'm like, great. And so I said, I went to Aaron and Land and I said, which is the worst city on here? And we all chose Kansas City, okay? Um, no offense if you're from Kansas City, but here's how I know it's the right city for us to have gone to. Is anybody from Kansas City? Okay, you're not gonna admit it, oh hey. Hey, Brandon, I remember us talking about that. It's okay, you're a Chiefs fan, whatever, we're Titans fan, it balances out. So um, I know that we chose the right city because when I asked my wife, are you okay if I go to Kansas City? She just laughed. So she's like, yes, you can go to Kansas City. I asked my friends, I said, do you wanna go to Kansas City? They said, not really. I said, perfect, that's where we're going. And even when we got there and we were talking to the locals, we're like, hey, we're three friends, we live in Nashville. Um, what's fun to do here in Kansas City? They said, I just go back to Nashville is what I do. So. <laughs> We went there, I finished my screenplay. I wrote like 70 pages in three days. And, and I knew there's no way I would have done it without this trip. And it became a tradition. We we've taken three trips this year. We went to Norfolk, Virginia, beautiful. How about that? We went to Birmingham. I mean, we're going to some mediocre cities here. And what we're doing is we're just turning boring work weeks into something a little bit more fun together. To me, that's what great friends do. They make boring moments better. Um, they make hard moments better. They make great moments even better. And that's what Jesus is doing here is he's sharing in this hard moment with this family and, and he cries with them. And then listen to this verse. This verse is so fascinating to me that the Jews noticed this. Then the Jews said, see how he loved Lazarus. They notice the brotherly love. And John's not using agape love here. He's using philia love. He's the Jews, the ones that are critical of Jesus actually note, wow, there's a different friendship here. There's a different relationship here. They actually physically note it. Like I wanna be the kind of friend that other people notice the kind of friend that I am. Not because I'm showing off, but because my love is just obvious for the people around me. That's what Jesus is showing us here. So here's my challenge for 2024. Be an incredible friend to a few people this year. I don't think we have the capacity to be an incredible friend to a bunch of people, but I think there's a few around us and there's probably some names in your head right now. Maybe the one or two that you said at the beginning, maybe even more. I think we have the capacity to be a great friend to some people this year. Be an incredible friend. Be the kind of friend that like, when, when your friends think of the friend that is always there for them, the friend that always reaches out to them, the friend that always initiates first with them, that's you. Like that's the kind of friend that we all need. That's the kind of friend that would change the stats that we've already looked at. Be, be the kind of great friend that you need. Be the great friend that you've been longing for yourself. Be the great friend that reaches out and initiates. Be the great friend that doesn't miss your friend's birthday. Um, I know for me, something I started doing, um, I, I have another full-time job. This, is, this isn't my full-time job. I, I lead a sales team of, of 16 guys every single week. And 
all of their birthdays are on my calendar, but I just tend to forget them anyway. Um, and, and like it sneaks up on me and then I'll do a call with them and I'll realize that afternoon it was actually their birthday. So something that I've done is I worked with my assistant that we, we timed out to, to send from Amazon. You can do this like a year in advance. Um, on the morning of your birthday, uh, even if your birthday's six months out, you can time a gift card to go to you at 8 a.m. on your birthday. And so I did this for my entire team. And then I just set it and forget it. And I completely forgot. So like what I now get is the guys on my team will text me at like 8.10 and be like, thank you so much for the gift. I'm like, absolutely, happy birthday. Like I didn't even remember it. <laughs> didn't even remember it. But man, that means so much. One of them even said, you're, you're the only non-family member that even got me a gift this year. Because adults, we don't really give each other birthday gifts. So it just, it created like a distinction. And that's the kind of friend that I think we could be. Just that alone, getting your friend a birthday gift, it just kind of sets things apart. It shows that you took time to notice them. Uh, be the friend that supports your friends when they're going through something. That's, that's the brotherly, sisterly love that Jesus shows to Lazarus, to Mary, to Martha. That's the kind of love that, that we just desperately need right now. That's why we're, we're, we're so void of this is because um, I think we've all got friends. Um, I just don't think we're being as good of friends as we could be. And I think we could step it up there. I think this is an area that we could grow and become healthier and stronger. Um, uh, now, I just want to share two natural obstacles um, before I close that I think um, are very common. I, I think that this, these are actually the reasons we don't already do this, I think, in a lot of ways. The first is this. Um, obstacle number one is it's, it's really hard to be motivated to be a good friend when you feel lonely or rejected by people around you. Our tendency when we're lonely, when we're lonely again, is to retreat. So th there's no tendency that when we don't feel close to somebody, our tendency is, is never naturally to say, I'm going to try to spend more time with them. It, like it actually, Satan loves to turn we into me. He loves to separate us. And, and I think that's, that's what he wants to do is he wants to replay all these lies so that again, the snowball effect comes that you feel lonely and then you become lonelier because you don't initiate because you retreat from it. Um, that's why this is more of a discipline than anything else. It's deciding to do the right thing, even if it's really hard and it takes grit. And here's why. Because the best way to make a great friend is to be a great friend first. It's the same principle as we love others because Jesus first loved us, right? As people following Jesus, we need to be willing to take the initiative and to be those bridge builders because we mirror emotions, you know? Does anybody here have a friend that is just incredibly positive? Like when you're around them, like they just make you more positive? None of them, <laughs> that's why we're so sad. Um, yeah, we've all got friends like that, right? Maybe you're that friend, right? I, I've got a friend, Matt, that every time I, I am with him, um, he's just such a fun, jovial guy. He's, he's got like a really young spirit. We laugh a lot. And I walk, like I become more positive when I'm around him. I walk away from that meeting more positive. Why? Because like psychologically, we mirror emotions. If we're around somebody that's critical all the time, what happens? We become more critical. If we're around somebody that's positive all the time, we become more positive. The same is true in friendships. If you're surrounded by great friends, if you're a great friend, the people mirror it back to you, uh, if you want to be a friend to be, if you want a friend to be more encouraging to you, be that for them. If you want a friend that you would spend more time with, initiate with them first. If you want a friend that that you feel like they're just not quite opening up as much, they're not being as vulnerable as they can, they kind of hold back, then you open up first because vulnerability breeds vulnerability. Great friendship breeds great friendship. Um, the second obstacle is this. Um, 
is naturally, um, we, we say our life is too busy for friendships. Like if, if my closest friends in the world, if I see them once a month, that's awesome. And, and I just, I wanna push back on that because uh, I don't believe you. <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that most people feel like they're busier than they actually are. In fact, this is also proven through statistics. It's, it's something called perceived busyness. I'll talk about it in just a moment. But um, I think that this is something that's really important that we, we think about because um, it's really easy to make the excuse that we're too busy to do things because we live in a culture that celebrates busyness for some weird twisted reason. You know, like you don't, you're never gonna see a New York Times article about a man who rested more from work, right? I mean, that's not what we celebrate. Instead, we celebrate the overworkers, the people who are owning and building four companies at the same time and they're workaholics and that's what we feel like we should do. That's why our instinct when people says, how have you been, is to say we're busy. Like, we, we, that's what's celebrated. A lot of times, even if we're not busy, we feel like we're busier than we are. Um, it's a concept called perceived busyness and <clears throat> this was based on a study that was done by a few universities that they actually dug deeper on people um, at how many hours they say they work versus how many hours they actually work. And here's what they found. They found that the average employee who says they work 40 hours a week, when they actually logged their own hours, this is not what, they, what other people determined their work to be. They logged their own hours. A 40 hour a week employee who said they worked 40 hours actually works 32. Now, somebody who brags that they work 50 hours a week, which is a lot of people, um, the, the, <laughs> the study said they actually work on average 37. That's perceived busyness. We're all that way, aren't we? Like, we're, we're incredibly busy, but we, we always have time to watch the Titans lose. And we always have time to, you know, watch our favorite team and to binge watch Netflix. Like, we have to get over that fact that we, we will always make time um, for the things that matter to us. An author, uh, Charles Buxton, he said, you'll never find time for anything. If you want time, you must make it. So here's my challenge. It's simple, it's something everybody in the room can do, even if you push back and say, I'm busier than you think, is this, um, tithe your free time. Now a tithe is not just related to giving. Um, tithe, it just means you're giving 10% of the portion that you're responsible for back, tithe. Um, so what that means is when you look at your free time, I'm not talking about the time that's already attributed to other things. Um, just in January and February and March each month, look at your free time and give 10% towards building friendships with other people. That seems really basic and that's something that everybody in this room can do, but just play that out for a minute. Imagine if in a given month, um, you 30 nights, and let's say you're a really busy parent or you're a really busy employee or you know, you've got different things going on that 10 nights a month are already accounted for. Um, because you're in a small group or you normally come to the Sunday night service or your kid has an activity. Um, you know, a lot of that, I get it. Like our kids, we have stuff on Monday nights and we've got our small group. And so let's just say that wipes out 10 days, uh, 10 nights every single month. That leaves you with 20. Just give two nights a month to friendship. Two nights. I mean, just imagine what that would do. Because I would imagine if most guys that are my age, I'm 36, I would imagine most guys, we're not nearly that intentional. Like if we do something once a month, I do a monthly poker night at my house with a few guys and most of the guys say, this is the only time I hang out with friends all month. And, and just because we're so busy with it, it's so easy not to. But tie that, look at your lunches. You know, everybody's schedule's different. Some of you are in school, some of you are working, some of you are home. But let's just say Monday through Friday, you have 20 lunches every single month. Some of those are gonna be wiped out with other responsibilities, but just give two lunches a month or two coffees a month towards friendship. I mean, it's amazing. This seems really basic, but just compound that over a year and imagine if every single month for the, uh, for the 2024 year, you spend two nights 
two afternoons with friendships. Imagine what that will do a year from now. I mean, it would truly put your life in a different place. Um, uh, final book I'll reference, I'm a readaholic, so sorry about that, but uh, there's a great book called Platonic that came out, um, not written by a faith-based author or anything, but um, one of the things that the author talks about is that the number one factor in close friendships, um, in fact, they say this attributes for 80% of how close you feel to somebody, is not a natural personality connection with them. You know, there's some people you just, you just right from the first moment you talk to them, you just get along with them. It's not that. It's not shared experiences that you've known them for years and years. Um, the number one factor is time together, which means any two strangers in this room, if you just spent enough time together, you'd eventually become a close friend. That's what it says, 80% of the time, which means that the only missing ingredient for most of us in friendships is, is time together. Um, so again, who's somebody you wanna build a better friendship with? Tithe your time to them. Do that once a month. If you get lunch with that person once a month next year, it's probably more intentional than you did this year. And that's a step up from it. Um, R- Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in love. This is philia love. Honor one another above yourselves because great friendships are built. They're not discovered. Adult friendships do not happen organically. We have to build them. Every great relationship is the result of an abundance of time spent together. Let me close with this story. Um, like I said, I, I lead a team with uh, a few other guys um, that they live all over the country, so we don't even see each other that much. But, um, but there's a guy on the team named Jack. Bobby, can you put up that picture of Jack, me at uh, lunch with him? So this is at Terry Black's Barbecue in Texas. Anyone ever been there? Anyway, it's the closest to heaven you can get on earth. It's the best barbecue in the world, all right? And um, Jack is a guy on the very right there. Um, I make a deal with my team that when they close their first deal, um, uh, and the deals that we work with are usually of larger scale. So it's a pretty big deal when a guy finally closes his first deal. A lot of guys will work for an entire year before getting their first deal. Um, I'm gonna take him to lunch anywhere they wanna go. So Jack closed his first deal this summer. Um, and usually it's just me and him that go. Um, but uh, Jack um, went through a really tough year. Um, he unexpectedly lost a family member uh, and it just, it just broke his heart, it wrecked him. And to see how my team rallied around Jack after that, was truly amazing because none of these guys even knew Jack before a year ago. Like he was brand new to our team. Um, we didn't even live in the same city as him, but weekly reaching out to him, praying for him, other guys taking him out, checking in on him, making sure he's good. He, he had like a fundraiser for, um, for his brother and a bunch of guys showed up and ran in the race with him. And so when it was time to get his first commission check, um, like my teams asked if they could come with and just celebrate with Jack. They wanted, to, they wanted him to know how much they loved him and cared for him. And Jack had tears in his eyes to know that he was a part of a sales team that's there for him to celebrate those moments. To me, that's the picture of the kind of friendship God wants us to have. Now that picture, that's the conclusion of weeks of invested time together to where it wasn't just five guys that showed up for lunch. These guys know Jack, they're there for him. He feels that. See, that's what it is. Great friendships, they're built. They're not discovered. It's not just something where I hope my best friend's in the room. We have to build that. It's something that takes investment and time. And, and, and let's just, let's let 2024 be the year that we do that, that you become a pillar in the friends' lives around you. Let's let it be the best friendship year of your life. And so a year from now, when you're looking back, um, you feel so much more closely connected because of the intentional time you spent with them. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for this church family. God, I'm thankful that like many people in this room, I can immediately think of people that I'd love to spend more time with. Um, 
that I'd love to build relationship with. And it's just a matter of putting it on the calendar. It's prioritizing it, God. Um, that it's easy to look at the end result of friendships and forget all the work and time it took to put into it. So I just pray that this year, 2024 is a year that we prioritize friendships, um, that we feel closely connected, that we create the kind of friendships that we can share, the happy moments, the hard moments, and even those boring weeks together, God. That's the kind of friendships we all wanna have. Thank you. Thank you for this awesome church family that we have. We love you. We thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.